You're fed up with the nine to five. You've been working hard for years and you're just not seeing the results you want. You want to break free from the traditional career but don't know how. Business Breaks is here to help. Well, hello and welcome to Business Breaks. Today, John and I will be discussing negotiation in a business context and in exploring why it's such an important skill. Negotiation can be a tricky process, but with the right tools and techniques, it can also be incredibly rewarding and lead to successful outcomes for all the parties involved. So I personally think negotiation skills are more important than ever because business conditions are more volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Negotiations and renegotiations occur more frequently, and being able to negotiate effectively is growing in importance when achieving success in today's business world. Whether you're a business leader negotiating contracts or a new employee negotiating employment terms, negotiation skills are critical to achieving success. Additionally, negotiation is not just about getting the best transactional deal for yourself and your company, but it's also about being able to negotiate strategic outcomes. It can be for a number of reasons, not necessarily just to get the best deal, although that's usually a part of it. It can also be to build long-term relationships, establish your brand reputation through creating win-win deals, and also being able to negotiate short-term deals for longer-term, larger deals in the future. So negotiation is a key life skill, which isn't just limited to business. It's also applicable in all areas of life, whether it's a raise, a car, or even deciding where to go for dinner. And to level set expectations, I remember a time talking with a senior operations leader about how bad it can get if you have no negotiation skills. He was recently partnered up with a fresh graduate from purchasing who basically was there to support getting a new contract with a supplier. The young man was taking the lead with a remit and he kick-started the discussion simply by saying, give me a 10% price discount. Why was that? Because that was his target. Supplier said, no, why should we? We're not going to drop our price, but you must give me 10%. No. And then he, re he simply just kept restating it louder. I need that 10%. And then the operations manager had to step in and start negotiating, saying, look, we understand commodity prices have risen. However, you have been getting efficiencies, meaning that it's taking less labor to complete the job. And also, we haven't been getting the same level of quality, so we need to revise the same base assumptions. Let's discuss. He negotiated a 12% reduction, which the graduate was credited for. So now, before we dive further into the topic, we want to qualify ourselves before continuing. Neither of us are ex-FBI negotiators, so don't worry, though. We'll do our best to give this topic justice. And with that said, let's get negotiating. John, why do you consider negotiation to be a key skill in business? I look forward to hearing your non-negotiables on this topic. Well, as you said, everything is nearly a negotiation at this stage, even 
from working with your colleagues to decide, you know, okay, where will we go for lunch this Friday to association with other businesses, whether in a partner or a subordinate or a, a, with you being the junior partner or them being uh, the junior partner or being pure equals, everybody kind of is negotiating for everything. You can even negotiate the negotiations. You know, will will we meet in person? Will it be over Zoom? Will it be over Teams? And given that, you know, so many pieces of, of the puzzle in business all, you know, go around negotiations, it is everybody, it's always been very important for everybody, whether they realize it or not. I think a lot of the thing is a lot of people just didn't necessarily categorize what they were doing as a negotiation. But it, it is, it always is. Even if you're giving instructions, it's really a form of negotiation. Very one-sided negotiation, but negotiation nonetheless. So yeah, and, and like you said in the introduction, negotiations and renegotiations that even negotiations that have been closed, they get renegotiated for various reasons. Um, so, you know, it's, it's very rare that there be a, a true one-off and as a result of that, then you, you need to keep one eye on the relationship. Well, you know, the relationship is the most important thing, not just the outcome of the transaction that you're negotiating. Because you don't know what the future holds, you may end up having to renegotiate this particular transaction, or you, you know, maybe looking for negotiations for a, a new transaction in the future, but with the same negotiating partners, whether they represent the same companies or different companies or, or wherever. So, that that's a key one I think is the relationship make sure above all else that the relationship is stronger at the end of the negotiations than it was at the beginning and, you know rather than just focusing on the transaction that you're trying to negotiate completely agree and it's interesting that when you do focus on the relationship you're able to be you're able to see more options because if you keep going transactional you're basically thinking win-lose and by default you have to win. And if you're always winning, then you find over time people will be less inclined to want to do deals with you. So even though you may think at the beginning you've got options, you can always switch suppliers, over time you'll find that those suppliers may not be so agreeable. They may actually penalise you either by sanctions or not doing business at all or actually making the prices so punitive because they know that they're going to get uh, exploited in the future. Yeah, that's, um, and that, that's, that's the key challenge, I think. You know, there's, there's many books that will deal with transactional tactics to use in negotiations, but I think, you know, the, the strategic overview of the relationship, you know, the, the relationship is the strategy, effectively, you know, that, that's... That's important because even if you don't do business with this particular negotiating partner again in the future, reputationally, you know, if they walked away from that feeling they had a good relationship with you, that will spread whether it's they themselves come up with, with you in the future and for a different negotiation or just, you know, they go on and negotiate with somebody else and have a good relationship there with them and recommend you, you know, that, oh, you had a you know a good experience with this even if they did transactionally, you got what you wanted. Now, sometimes maybe there will be a kind of almost a, I don't think there's ever really a true zero sum game and negotiations, you know, it should be possible for both sides to come out with, with something, but there can be a, a kind of a sense of a win loss transactionally. 
So how do you avoid that situation? I think as well working the relationship because if you can strengthen the relationship, even if they didn't get as much as they, the other side didn't get as much as they wanted transactionally, if they're walking away thinking they've, they've strengthened their relationship, they'll still kind of think of that as a success. And the same for you, that if you, you know, you might not get everything you want, but if you've gotten a strong relationship out of the negotiations, it's a success. It's a success for the future. Yeah. And you have to make sure that your strategy is aligned and you have the right partner that you're negotiating with. Ideally, you want someone who's not looking to, and I think we covered this before, someone who's look, who could potentially be your competitor in the future, maybe someone further down the supply chain, further up the supply chain, who's just looking for an edge that they can use to grow their own business. So if you've got the distribution and maybe you're the middleman between the supply and the market, maybe the supplier would look to edge you out eventually or some other, some other form of uh, competing, maybe setting up their own capability, but working closely with you to learn what you do and effectively copy it, reproduce it in order to create their own version of it and then edge you out, but then also have access to your customers and understand how you work, how you acquire them. So there's there's kind of that in, in there. At, at the same time, you know, these, on the flip side, you may have competitors who you might collaborate with and they could eventually become your customers whether it's through outsourcing work that they they don't want to do or they're not suited to do. It's, it's very tricky, really. At some point, you do want to be seen to be make, getting advantages. You don't want to be giving concessions all the time and then thinking people owe you favours, but they don't feel like they've owed you anything because they've already had the transaction. So there is that balance to be had. And there's an element of protecting yourself now whilst growing your reputation for the longer term. I guess in terms of as a supplier, you need to be thinking about long-term customer lifetime value. But at the same time, it's also making sure you have the right customers. So you're very specific on which customers you're focusing on those negotiations with. And you don't want to deviate too far from what your core competencies are. If your business model only offers a certain bundle of products you don't want to be deviating and trying to do things that you're not set up to do or you're not naturally capable of delivering with ease and this is again where you may you may want to bring in a partner to actually deliver the pieces that you can't do but you might not want to be too closely connected it may be a hands-off here's a referral these people are people we refer to to actually work with for this type of service. But yeah, it's interesting. I, I think that's kind of like the business side. What do you think on the emotional side? Because there's a couple of considerations. I think one of the most obvious things that happens in a negotiation is you get the hardball player, someone who's off the bat confrontational, aggressive goes in it's like they're angry at you because you've done something to them you've offended them but that's usually an opening gambit it's to basically get you to back down scare you into making concessions you wouldn't normally make if you were calm have you seen that in your negotiations john 
seeing people attempt it, uh, it almost invariably backfires. Maybe not at the direct negotiation that you're at, but what will tend to happen is there will be pushback later on. Um, but, and again, that's that's why I think, you know, in, in the lead up to the negotiation, you're better off focusing on the on the strategic area rather than the tactical area, you know, don't don't go for the transactional piece where you can get that aggressive when you know trying to get this 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 focus on the relationship because then you're less likely to get emotionally involved if you're if you're trying to build a relationship with the other person, you know, even if they start getting aggressive or whatever, you're less likely to be so quick to push back and end up in a confrontational negotiation and if you're you're focused on the relationship what you'll be probably trying to do is calm them down whatever's getting them so excited calm them down and let's just get back onto it an equal footing here with the thing and that can also be uh, you know one of the things you you suggested where uh, you know working with a supplier who you know further up the supply chain or, or further down the supply chain who, who may be looking to become a competitor and you don't want to give away too much with the thing again that's where you don't want to focus too much on the transactional piece because that's where you get lost in the weeds. You want to be looking at the strategic, what's in it for them? Why are they being so helpful? I mean, the, the classic example being the uh, giant bicycles, you know, that they were initially just a, an outsourced manufacturer. I can't remember the name of the the company that they did, but eventually that company seemed to want to take less and less strategic um, involvement in the business was just focusing on the on the tactics on, on the transactions with with Giant, and eventually introduced Giant to all their distributors. So then Giant kind of said, "Well, hang on a second, what do we need this other company for? We're the manufacturer. We now have all the the distributors' contacts. That was the only thing the the only thing that the the original company had that made it relevant. Now we have it." We're just going to stop supplying you and tell the distributors they can take our bikes with our branding, or no. And then that I, you know, obviously I was not involved in those negotiations originally, but I would strongly believe that a large chunk of how that happened to the other company was they were so focused on the transactions, the, 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 the transactional negotiations. They were not looking at the bigger picture. They weren't looking at the strategy, uh, so they never seen it coming. You know, and that's that's one of the pieces that I think is important to to look at the, you know, not just from your point of view, but from the person you're negotiating with from their point of view. What is it that they are likely to be doing? Because you know, you, you mentioned about them being very aggressive, or maybe they're be they're being too nice. You know, they're they're giving you too great a deal. Why are they giving you too great a deal? Why would they do that? You know, that they have to make profits, and if you've worked her out that they need to get a certain price to make those profits and they're coming in lower than that price, well, then you need to question, why are they willing to take losses now? Uh, what is it that, that they're planning? You know, they they will make those profits eventually. And, and maybe that's, you know, they'll be quite open about it. Maybe they're saying to you, we're giving you this great price now, we're only for six months, but then we'll want a higher price. But then again, a lot of the times they don't say that. They just tell you they're, they're giving you this great price and you jump on it and take it. And then six months later, you're stuck with them and they can give you, you know, as high prices they want, and there's not a lot you can do because you're too involved. Locked in. You're yeah. locked in. There, there's, there's a number of ways people lock in customers. 
So, for example, making it so hard to extract themselves once they're in. Uh, for example, on ERP systems, you know, all that cloud hosting, getting the data out again is going to cost you an arm and a leg once it's in there. Also, imagine trying, even if you do get the data out, having to harmonize it so you can feed it into a brand new system. That's what they tend to play on. And so you have customers who have clients who are forced into forced into a situation where they can't afford the upgrades, but they still have to keep overpaying for the base product. And that's just through the negotiation and, you know, thinking, as you say, too transactionally. And there are some get-out-of-jail clauses that you can put into negotiations, but they don't cover every scenario. And I think the business disruption is almost more expensive than the and the risk of losing your regular customers through disruption in service is, is also almost more costly than actually taking the hit further down the road. However, you can do things like indemnity clauses which put the emphasis on a potential customer who might try and steal your customers' confidentiality agreements, making sure that if there is information sharing that is not used to exploit the business, termination contracts, clauses, uh, limitation of liability, and then also the classic force majeure if there's an act of God that prevents one party for, from fulfilling their obligations, then then they can actually say, look, not our fault. <laughs> yeah. uh, aliens invaded. You know, that's I think a lot of those things are, are they're kind of, when you get to the contracts and the, the legal people will, will look after them. At that stage, if you're relying on that, your negotiation has failed. You know, in, in all honesty, you're, you've kind of, therefore when things really badly go wrong with, with what you've agreed to do, but I, I think kind of for the negotiation part, before you ever get to the legal you know, handing over some legal terms, there needs to be a sense of, um, how do you say, legal is a, is a necessary evil, but that should be always the fallback, not the the force point of thing. The negotiation to be successful, what you really need to have done is created a good enough relationship that you may, neither party will ever feel they need to go to the legal team to enforce on. Because if something goes wrong, the relationship is there that they can get back together, renegotiate uh, and come up with a solution. You know, if if the solution is, well, we're just going to have to enforce the legal requirements, the the negotiation was very, I think, transactional again because the legal part is going to be transactional and the relationship wasn't strong enough to come up with a solution that didn't involve getting, you know, lawyers or solicitors or whatever you want to call them, depending on what part of the the wars you're from involved and you know if they have to get involved i mean they'll, they'll be involved in the negotiations i suppose as well and, and all those type of terms will will uh, and and conditions will get into the contracts but when i think of negotiations i kind of thinking the initial negotiations before you have you know you may have a legal representative with you just to make sure that things make sense but they're not the ones you know, in the doing the negotiating, the negotiating is being done by non-legal people who know what they're, you know, talking about, who are representing the company and who are trying to build on. It's them who need to build a relationship. The legal people, they don't need to build a relationship. They need to make sure that they're legally 
cover their backsides. But then so- isn't that almost dangerous as well? Because what you can negotiate up front in the large print, legal people can easily remove in the fine print sometimes. And yeah. that that can also be very dangerous. And uh, coming to that point, you're absolutely right. However, I think there is a, there is something to be said to not just assume a deal's done just because it's verbally agreed. Always, always check what's in writing before you sign the contracts at the end. I remember one one of the CFOs I used to work directly under, he managed to negotiate a massive deal with the local government to pay for a environmental waste cleanup, which they were responsible for, for some land we'd acquired. But he, I remember thinking he's going to have a challenge trying to renegotiate the deal but he spent days, even weeks, going through contracts and various clauses, and he managed to find a um, some negotiating loopholes, which he managed to shrewdly negotiate with some very, very tough negotiators. But he did he he was notorious for doing his homework inside and out, pouring through all of the legal clauses, and then weighing up the pros and cons. I wasn't present during the negotiations. But I was very impressed with the outcome, if that makes sense. Yeah, and yeah, I suppose that's another part of the negotiation is make sure you do have um, somebody good who understands the legal bits. You know, don't don't you know, especially a lot of the the listeners will probably be for small, mid-sized companies. They are the head negotiator, and they'll do everything. And you're kind of thinking, well, you know, when you've got the negotiations done do make sure to get some legal advice as to whether or not, you know, for all the goodwill in the world, there may be clauses in it that, as you said, completely undo what's been negotiated. And that, the, you know, if the contract says something completely different to what your verbal negotiations said, well, the contract is what's legally enforceable. So <laughs> it, you, you do want to get some legal advice. And, you know, for, for small companies, that legal advice may not necessarily be having a legal team in-house. It may mean going to see your local solicitor, your local lawyer. But the other way of doing it as well is, you know, especially if it's a standard contract, you know, it's a standard supply contract, standard purchase contract, standard employment contract, whatever. You know, you, you get your standard template designed and get some legal advice for that. And then when you go and you negotiate with other people, you try to make sure that it's your standard template that's used because at least you know what that says, what the small print in that is. If the other side managed to get you to accept their standard contract template, then you need to get that reviewed by somebody who knows the legal ends and outs because we're all the goodwill in the world of negotiations. Building up the best relationship with the person you are negotiating with and all it's all great and it does help for the future but if something does go wrong that cannot be walked out through that relationship and it goes to the legal people to fix it's going to be the terms of the contract so make sure you do know what those terms are and not just you thinking that you know that you have a legal expert do it because you know I mean I I think and I'm sure you do as well I think of myself as a pretty on the ball person I'll cop on when something doesn't make sense in in a contract but I'm not a legal expert, which means there'll be certain phrases, certain terminology, um, don't necessarily mean what a normal English-speaking person would think they mean. Legal contracts don't do not use, you know, well, there are the, the 
people trying to get legal contracts to use simple, plain English, they don't. And a lot of what they say actually does not mean what a normal person would think they mean. A legal person considered mean something very different. So, um, you know, while you hope if the negotiation was successful, it will never come down to relying on the legal is. Do make sure that you have, no matter how great the relationship seems to be, things change. Maybe that person you built a relationship with will not be there when things go wrong and whoever comes in won't have that relationship with you and we'll just go straight to the legal is. So make sure you know what the, the legal terms are in the negotiations. They, they usually will come a little bit later in the negotiations. The initial negotiation is building up the relationship and then you get down to the nitty gritty. And that's when the legal people will get involved. If you're in a company big enough to have their own, they'll be probably with you from the beginning, but they'll really come into their own then. And if you're from a small company that doesn't, that's when you need to just get somebody to cast an eye over it and make sure there was nothing there that you know, cause problems. Completely agree. And extending beyond that, when we think about the situation we're in when we go into a negotiation, we need to think about the context of that negotiation, how we're positioned, and then when we're in the negotiation, how we read the room, how we read the people who are negotiating with us. Um, there's a lot to be said for being able to read the signs and the cues from their body language and also their tone of voice as well as what they say but more so the body language because you're trying to establish that rapport build that relationship sometimes empathy really helps there in terms of being able to understand what things you can push on and what things do you need to just gently nudge your way into because you'll have a whole load of I mean, there's that classic Harvard Batner best alternative to a negotiated agreement that helps you frame the negotiation in terms of, well, is this acceptable or not? And do we walk away or do we just park it and then come back to it? Or do we need to really push hard and say, look, that's unreasonable? But at the same time, you need to be able to see what, ideally, you want to get to what are the other parties' non-negotiables and then work around, well, where can we find some sort of alignment here where both parties actually feel like they've got a good deal out of it? And that's that's a key one as well. And I think, you know, I, I, there's plenty of books that will give people specific, um, you know, things like you, you just did the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. Your, your, your minimal accepted some output and you know, various things like that. So I, I, and there are loads of books that will give people all those types of things. But I think one of the, the better, well, not one of the better ones, one of the key ones should be, you know, you've, you've worked out what's the minimum that you can take that, that you consider. There's no point in trying to work that out during a negotiation. You need to know before you go in, this is, you know, you need at least this, if not better. But also be trying to think about it from the other side's point of view, to try and figure out what would they want and I think, you know, one of the things that um, worked for me a lot of the time has been try to think of at least two or three. Don't assume that they are going in from the same point of view as, as you. So if it's a, you're going in to negotiate with a potential supplier, say, and what's important to you is price, don't assume that what's important to them is also going to be price. It may be and kind of think, well, what would be the, and you can try and walk around, right? And this is the, the highest price I'm willing to pay. 
what would be likely to be the lowest price they're willing to take. And then we can see what the, you know, are they within range of each other. But also try to think of at least one, if not two, other things that they may be looking for out of it. That maybe price is not what they want. And the reason I say to do that, um, it's not so much so that you know what they want when you go into the negotiations. You, you don't. You you won't know until you've actually gone into the negotiations. Only they know what they want. But if you force yourself to try to think of at least two, if not three, different possibilities for what they want, it kind of opens your mind a little bit that when you go in, and it helps you read the room, as you, you were mentioning, that when you go into the negotiations, you're not just blinkered on the one thing that was important to you and assuming it's important to them. You're a little bit more open-minded and trying to pick up on the the um, you know the, the nuances of the negotiation, and you suddenly realise, okay, they're not so fixated on the price. Why are they then? What do they want? Why do they want in? You know, maybe they're just trying to break into a new market. But if that's the case, then they're not fixated on the price now, but they probably will be for the renegotiations in six or twelve months' time once they're established. But, but at least you know in advance that this is the case. So. You know, okay, you, you don't walk down and say, right, I've got a brilliant price here. I can now burn all the bridges where all the other squares because I'll never need them again. And that, no, actually, I realize I've gotten a brilliant price here because they want into the market. In 12 months' time, when they're established, that price will go up. So I want to make sure I don't burn any bridges with other suppliers. I may need to go back to them in the future. Examples like that, you know, I think are, are important to just, again, it's the overall strategy rather than just focusing on one transactional negotiation be thinking of the the bigger picture of arms well i've seen it i've seen it on built you know commercial contract negotiations on say property uh contracts you know you think you're getting a good price but what you paid for is the gold service what you get is the bronze service and what you were hoping for was the platinum service so uh, suppliers can always drop price but then there's other things they'll drop, like quality, value, time. They'll maybe make it slower. They'll deprioritize it. They may do it in a way that's more risky to quality, which, again, then damages your value, your reputation in the market, and then your level of trustworthiness. So, again, yeah, maybe they'll offer a low-ball price to get the business in, but you also need to hold them accountable for the specification of work that you're going to have the usually there's a disconnect between a buyer especially in large companies you've got a a requester who's someone from the operations a production manager a logistics manager they know what they want but then when they hand over that spec to the buyer the buyer actually goes out market tests it gets a few options usually because uh, the suppliers maybe have take a liberal view on what does that specification mean in terms of is it exactly this or are we just delivering a result and then they quote on that basis because they think oh well we can we can lose some money here but we can make some money on this part of the contract and then it becomes very interesting to try and see where do you end up do you actually end up having to adjust the pricing or just reduce the value of what you've actually paid for which i i've seen both both happen and to, in a lot of cases, you even end up with fraud reviews because you wonder, was there some collusion? Hang on a minute. These guys paid for five components. They only got four. But they're saying that the, the four components were much better quality. But you get another engineer to audit that. They say, well, actually, it's it's exactly what they paid for. And they, 
they lost out on the fifth piece. <laughs> Which they didn't maybe need in the end, but they put it in because, again, this is where collusion comes in, right? You know, you've got your favourite supply, you add in another another requirement, and then five suppliers bid, but the one you want, you tell them, don't worry about that fifth piece. We don't really need it. Just just bid on the full parts. And I would say there, there are ethical problems with the the company and the negotiator that's involved there. Well, beyond what what. Well, this is outside of the outside of the buyer. Actually, the buyer's blissfully unaware that's what's going to happen. It's usually a backdoor deal between the requester and the supplier. But yeah, there are. I mean, you think about it, there are ethical considerations which. I guess are outside the scope of this discussion. I, I think we're trying to see, and uh, yeah, I mean, obviously I'm trying to make it as real world as possible, but yeah, these things happen. And I know the norm- examples are, I, I can think of where um, negotiations, uh, you know, kind of didn't look at the negotiator, didn't look at the bigger picture and got stung for it. Where, where over here in Ireland, there's, um, suppliers of it, they kind of go a lot for big offices and um, there's a number of them, big offices and schools and educational establishments. They supply all the cleaning stuff for their cleaners and that's all toilet rolls, you know, all, all the rest of it. But the the things that I noticed, like some of them back a good few years, they're probably still doing it now, I don't know. They were going in to, and getting the, the deal mainly with the toilet rolls and that was their, their lead in. And what they were doing was giving this great deal much cheaper than than any of the competitors, but the title rolls only worked with a specific title roll holder. So they would offer to go in and replace all your title roll holders for free with these new ones. But they were the only ones who sold the title rolls that fit those holders. And you got the great price for whatever it was, six months. And at the end of that six months, then suddenly the price shot up. But you were stuck with them because you had these title roll holders that only held title rolls they were selling. And you couldn't replace them all because they happily and, and you know, voluntarily, when they replaced them with the, their ones, they took away your old ones and they, they got rid of them for you so you wouldn't have to worry about, you know, disposing of them and stuff like that. All seemed really good, a real great win for the negotiators who were just thinking transactionally. They got really cheap trial roll, but they weren't looking at the bigger picture. Hang on a second. If they're changing all these, we're stuck with them. We'll never be, a, it'll be very difficult to move anywhere else. And then obviously, you know, that was their, their aim, but they were also supplying all the other stuff then, but they were a little bit more expensive for all the other stuff where the deal was, was the toilet rolls. And that was, you know, that particular thing. But the negotiators for the purchaser, uh, and they got into many places, whether they were officer buildings, they were uh, educational establishments. and blah, blah. They were looking too transactionally. They say in six months at like half price tile roll, which was their biggest expense because lots of toilets and, and you know, constantly, especially in educational systems with uh, the students and that. But then at the end of it all, they, they they were paying a bit more for all the other stuff because they just used the one supplier, the same person ran the tile roll, ring all the other stuff. But the overall, they were getting there all cheaper because of the tile roll. But then after six months or 12 months, whichever, I can't remember what the, the terms are, tile roll shot up in price. Everything else was still that little bit more expensive. Now so was the file roll. But it was very difficult for them to get out of that contract because now there was suddenly a big upfront expense of they'd have to take down themselves all these new toilet roll holders and replace them with, with brand new ones. And that was a big expense when you're talking about a big building with lots of toilets. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, but it was kind of one of those things. 
that I, I was walking in a place at the time that had offices in one of the it was it was an office space you know that they had and the they themselves didn't do it they didn't look after the it was the office manager you know did that and it was the whole kind of campus area of the offices that had done it and I, I went in to to use the toilet and one time after the day I was the first thing that jumped out to me was how the hell does this this work you know you I'm looking at the 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 tile holder burrow holder and thinking there's only one I've never seen that type of toilet roll before. It's not something that you could just even run down in a panic to the shop and buy normal toilet rolls fit in. It wouldn't fit in it. And kind of thing. Is it one of those ones where the hole, the middle hole is yeah. exceptionally large? And that's why it's like, yeah. It was exceptionally small, actually, because what used to happen was it always break when you'd be pulling. The, <laughs> well, it, yeah, well, there, there was only one supplier at that time. Anyway, maybe now really? the other suppliers have got an upper, but. At that stage, there was only one supplier of that type. And I'm looking at it and thinking, yeah, it means you're, you know, I, I said it to the office manager, you know, I was talking to him. And I said, Why did you just do that? Because you have no choice now. You have to keep buying from them because well, no, just replace no. the toilet roll holders. You know, yeah, but that would, that's a very expensive thing to do. You know, when you've replaced them in all the, the cubicles in the whole, uh, yeah. this, you know, now suddenly you have to replace all of them. And, and that's going to cost a fortune because. They did it for them for free, put their own ones in, but they're not going to take their own ones out and give you somebody else's for free. Can you switch suppliers and get them to... Uh, well, that's, all... if, that's if other suppliers were doing the um, same thing, but no supplier would do that offer unless they had some kind of... Uh, incentive. Yeah, yeah they, they needed a bespoke kind of holder that they are the only ones who supply it. Um, and then, because then they've got you locked in with them. But, but you know, it's it's... Yeah, that's one specific example. But that's the type of example to watch out for. You know, maybe not with your your toilet roll holders. I, I imagine now everybody is doing the same types of a toilet roll, so they can all compete with each other regardless. And you bought the the initial lot off. Where um, but there'll be other things like that. It's you know more day to day, mundane stuff. But people will be trying. You know, if something seems too good to be true, there's a reason why it is, and you know that that could be one of them. They're they're looking to lock you in. Um, well, that's a trap, isn't it? A negotiation trap that you wouldn't really know about unless you have... Very frequently. I mean, that's of all the things, that's a pretty you know obvious one that, that you think it's so basic. Um, and then you wonder why your uh, sundry costs are going up. Monthly mm-hmm. skyrocketing. Hang on a minute. People can't be going to the toilet more. <laughs> or maybe they are. Maybe we cut down on our food budget instead. That's mad. But it is, it is so true. I mean, once you get once you get into a certain situation of trust, then people become complacent and they're not checking. And then suddenly you find out you've massively overpaid for certain bits and bobs. And maybe just on average, you just end up generally paying more than the market price. I, I mean, we had some situations where we um, ended up um, cutting off contracts with suppliers and then having realized after the event we'd actually pay for stuff we hadn't even received because they were on this sort of, uh, what do you call it, CDI payment system uh, where they sh- where they issue delivery notes. The delivery notes would be signed off by the, the warehouse manager and we get all these sundry inventory, which is off the books because it's not like, it's all expense, right? So... There's no there's no inventory for toilet roll like you say light bulbs, fixtures and fittings etc. They're just in a warehouse sitting somewhere, 
uh, which can be drawn upon. But if someone stole, say, I don't know, uh, 10 toilet rolls, they no one would miss it. No one would even know. <laughs> I think that then you're, you're going way beyond negotiations into the ethics and trustworthiness of your staff. If that's the, if that's the, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's just general internal control, yeah. That's it. But from the negotiation point of view, it's it's kind of always, you know, you should have been able to see that coming and not the theft, the theft of something, you know, but I mean, the lock-in piece, you know, like giving you two blood of the deal, what's the catch? Well, there's the catch, the lock-in piece, which means, yeah, fine, maybe you'll still choose to go with them, but at least be aware that yeah. you're going to be locked in and this is what you're going to be exposed to. Exactly. And and the simple rule of thumb is if this deal doesn't work out, how much is it going to cost to get out of it? Yeah. And in that case, that example I gave, the cost was going to be having to replace all your toilet roll holders with, with, with new ones and so that you could buy off somebody else. Now, you know, if somebody had paid attention at the beginning, hey, maybe they wouldn't have gotten into that deal in the first place because they'd have realized, or B, at the very least, that it said, yeah, you can replace all the toilet roll holders. We're all the ones that are there. I don't want you to throw them away. I want you to give them to me and we'll put them and store them somewhere. So that in six months' time, I'd have the option to put them back. And, you know, if, if the price went up too much, you know, or if I wasn't happy with the price. Yeah. But again, it's it's just don't look at the transaction. Don't focus purely on the transactional. Because the transactional there of the negotiation was they were getting the side roll for about half the price that it would normally cost. So the overall cost were going to come down. Great deal. Let's do it. But if they'd looked at the strategic, the overall, what's our relationship going to be like? Well, our relationship is going to be great. We're getting a good deal for six months. But in six months' time, they get to put up a price for whatever they want and we're locked in. So there's the strategy. That's what the opponents, they did not the opponents. Sorry, I shouldn't have been, I shouldn't use that word for negotiations. That's what the pro win lose is women. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're collaborating. <laughs> and then so our, our partners are, and, you know, and the, and the, the supplier side in this case, their strategy is to to basically get us locked in with them. That might be fine um, as long as we're getting a good deal from them. Maybe we'll accept it, maybe we won't, but at least we'll go in where our eyes open. Whereas by focusing on the transactional, you're going in with your eyes closed to the what's coming down the line. And this is it. I mean, you quite rightly said, and that was probably you being anchored to that previous deal where it was a win-lose scenario where your the company you were talking to had lost. Uh, but usually you're going into it, you should do your research on the person who you're about to negotiate with before you enter into an agreement. Just see what previous customers, if you can, talk to them about how they do business or the lessons learned, uh, what are the tricks of the trade. I think reputation will carry across in the industry, especially if you're if if you're dealing with people who are established industry players. There's going to be people who will be able to tell you more about them, how they work, how they operate. And I'd say if you can get more than one view on it, because not everyone's going to be all, all rosy, they will treat different customers differently as well. You'll find yeah, some that... of us, yeah. Sorry, sometimes it'll turn out that the people you're going to be negotiating with were the good guys and were great and were trying to be honest. The person you asked was trying to be the greedy one and trying to, to, to you know, do a zero sum game and take all the benefit for themselves. So they walked away from it. 
and and you're getting a you know told from the bad guys' point of view type of thing. So you know, so so yeah, try and get more than one. And and again, like I said earlier, just try to figure out well what would be what what is it that they might want if they're you know if price is not their their biggest um, thing. Then what is it? And that goes for everything. We've kind of been using examples, I suppose, of negotiations being a purchaser and a seller. Um, but yeah, as, we, as you said at the, in the intro, that it, it's not. It's, it's everything. It's, um, it could be an employment, you know, negotiation. And and, and there goes you know, the perfect example. And I was the, the person there, and I would often have, um, you know, the, the annual review with my boss at the time, many many years ago, and he kind of knew, um, you know, he he'd lead me to last. There was a few different groups that would need to be done, but I was a group of one. Um, and he'd always leave me to last, and it would depend on how badly stung he'd gotten for, from the other groups for pay rises. And because when he got to me, he knew, you know, we, there, there was the relationship had built up. There was a certain interest, and he knew. And I, I knew why, why I was always left to last as well. There was no, you know, thing. I, I figured that out pretty quick, but he figured it out pretty quick as well to leave me for last. And it was it worked out for both of us. Because for me, it wasn't necessarily always going to be. I want the biggest pay rise I can get. I'm, I'm what he do is if he if he if he'd been stung too badly from everybody else, he'd kind of keep the pay rise for me down a bit, where I'd get extra days holidays. So by the time I finished in that job, I had about fifty percent more days holidays each year than anybody else because they just kept going for money, 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 money. Whereas you know, when we had the negotiation, I was like, oh, I I kind of. You know, I can, yeah, we get a bit of a pay rise to cover inflation and that, but I like some more holidays. <laughs> and that was the the thing. So there, there was, it was a win-win there. Perfect. He got to keep his, you know, the country. Yeah, because then he could cut down on, on me a little bit. But I got more holidays then than everybody else. And I was fine with that because what I did at that time didn't require me to be there all the time. I could, I could have, you know, basically it ended up with, Think when I mean, you take in Christmas, which everybody got, but right, I had at least but two months holidays a year. I had six weeks that I got to pick, plus two weeks at Christmas, whereas everybody else got four weeks and, and the two weeks at Christmas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was always a really handy job. Yeah, and two weeks of Christmas not coming out of your holidays, but you know that that was so you know to know where your negotiating partner is coming from, what's likely to to be the, their motivation means that you. Should be able to, in most cases, have a win-win situation that everybody walks away feel quite happy with. You know that nobody's had to really give up that major. They got what they wanted on both sides, and um, you know, doing things like that just by building up the relationship, getting to know the other sides, um, preference situation. You know what? What would they want? It won't always be about money. A lot of the time, it will be about money. Yeah, but there are little areas where you, you can, you know, and the same with buyer purchaser kind of uh, seller purchaser type of scenario that maybe, you know, the, the person who's selling in services industries, you know, negotiating with somebody to provide a service for you. Yeah, there might be some, you know, possibilities there that they won't be looking for the highest price. What they might be looking for is introductions to some of your your other clients or customers or contacts, so that they can sell those services. Yeah, you know. So, so just that that's why I think it's it, it is key to try and look at it from a strategic point of view. And maybe they won't be going into the uh, negotiation thinking that way. 
maybe that's something you can suggest to them. You know, maybe they went in thinking just purely transactional and you can say, right, look, you know, I have an idea here. I can't afford the money you're looking for, but this is what I can afford. And what I can also do there is I can introduce you to, you know, and, and, and things like that, that if, you, if you've put a bit of strategic thought rather than just purely transactional thought into the negotiation before you've gone into it, gives you a little bit more. It won't always work out, but a lot of time it will. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's all about resources because ultimately when you're negotiating with colleagues, whether it's your boss, your peers, your reports, you're talking about how can I get more of your time? And usually sometimes the way you compensate them for their time is is, is money, but it can be, you know, giving them paid holidays or maybe discretionary bonuses, maybe training. So things that may be, and again, training can be a bit tricky because some employees, you know, that they're angling the training so that they can get more qualified and leave as quickly as possible. So there's a balance to be had there. But again, you want them to be motivated as well. So again, it's performance versus what's the cost. And again, trying to get the value for the business. So regardless of whether they're there for the long term or the short term, for whatever term they're there, you want to get the most out of them in terms of results. If they're just messing around, well, then you're not managing. And you just question, yeah. You do need to be careful with those types of negotiations as well. If you're going in and thinking what they want is money, 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 yeah. and you're negotiating with the, your your report, your, your subordinate in the job, and all you're doing is paying them lots and lots and lots and lots more money. But if that's not what's important to them, maybe what's important to them is recognition. Maybe all they want you to do is recognize the work they're doing and say, thank you, you know, well done, job well done, little things like that. But if you're not recognizing that in the negotiations, all you're doing is throwing money at them, then what you end up with is a very demotivated employee who's just there for the money. You know, so it does in a lot of things, I think, every not everybody, lots of people that are in negotiations go in purely looking at the transaction, the money. Yeah, uh, you know, regardless of what it is, or or the, to the time, and um, you know that they, you go in, you negotiate with somebody internal. You're not you're not their employer. You're not giving them a pay rise. You're negotiating for them to do a project internal within the company. But what you want is the project done as quickly as possible. And uh, they want they may want something else, or they you know they may be willing to do all the uh, to try and get it done as quickly as possible, but. You need to offer something to them. Why would they want to do that? Why would they want to put themselves under that much pressure? Why would they not want to push back and get twice as long to do it? You know, in, in those situations, then you have to think, well, what's in it for them? What can I offer them? And, you know, you probably can't offer them money if you're not there, the, the HR person. You, you may be able to offer them something else, you know, the recognition. The, maybe there's another project that they really want to be part of and you can offer them, well, when this project is finished, then we can move on to that project. And now only do something like that if you're genuine, you have the authority and the power to do it and you're intending to back them up because if you if you promised them the, the opportunity to do their project in return for getting your project done and then didn't follow through on that in the future, you've just borne so many bridges that chances are they're out the door and you're never going to be able to get them again, you know, to, to do that. And so um only make, you know, negotiating agreements like that when you can actually fulfill them but but again you know little things like that even in terror we're in the the company at that you know it doesn't involve money at all it's, it's 
various things, but, but try to think about it from the other side's point of view on a strategic level. What what might they want? Um, even if that's not what they come in looking for, it's something you might be able to offer. Absolutely makes sense. That's great. I think we're probably at a point where we've covered most things. Obviously, we haven't gone into the nitty-gritty of tactics because there's things that you can do. There's gambits. There's things, like, you know, there's there's techniques which you can do. And just for the purposes of completeness, let me list a few. And, John, if you have any more, just let me know. So you can always threaten to walk away from a deal. You know, that is a gambit. If you don't mean it, sometimes people will threaten to walk away to try and force some concessions. There's bait and switch, which is ethically questionable, but you you tempt people in, you lure them in by offering them something desirable, but then you switch it with something less desirable in the end. So again, it leaves the other party feeling cheated. I wouldn't recommend that. There's bringing two people into a negotiation and playing good cop, bad cop, someone being more aggressive, the other guy being more conciliatory, saying, look, I can get you this, but this guy might not like it, but, you know, I'll try. And, you know, getting you to sort of like, again, frame it from a position of, oh, well, whatever I concede is not the worst deal ever, because it could have been a lot worse. There's also stonewalling where you refuse, and then that frames the conversation of, I'm superior to you. There's also changing the rules midway through a negotiation, changing terms in order to gain an advantage, then creating a sense of urgency. Look, I've got a plane to catch in 30 minutes. Let's wrap this deal up as quickly as possible and getting people to accept terms without fully considering them. And then maybe, heaven forbid, using personal attacks and emotional manipulation accusing them of being unethical, cheap, or dishonest, you know, that sort of thing. That can obviously be used to shame someone into backing down and, again, accepting a deal that is not in their favour. John, anything else you could add to that? Well, actually, where a lot of them that, that you, you um, pointed out, uh, you know, our tactics at Dunham, a lot of them are actually marketing tactics as well. Yeah. Things like <laughs> rushing... You know, this offer is only on the table for so long, you, you know, or I've gone off to get the plane. So what I'd kind of suggest to people is, um, you know, do read up on, on marketing tactics as well as negotiating tactics. You'll find an awful lot of overlap. Not so much, I, I, I wouldn't, like as you said, or, you know, bait and switch, things like that. There are ethical problems or a lot of them. And I'd be inclined to, to recommend to people, try to build rapport, build a relationship and build trust up. That's the key to negotiating. But be aware of all these other tactics, not so much so that you can use them on other people, but so that you can recognize if somebody is trying to use it on you. Yeah. Um, and then the other piece of, of it is that the, the biggest piece is practice, practice, practice. You know, look for where you have negotiations and you have them every day. So you just probably didn't realize there were negotiations. Pay attention, recognize when you're having a negotiation and use it to practice. Like you, the example you gave at the, the early on about it's your first example, actually, the um, graduate student doing it and going in and not having a clue and then the, the uh, more senior person getting an even higher discount. But that graduate will have learned an awful lot there from, from that and will hopefully will have learned a lot and will pick up on it. But not everybody will have the opportunity to, to do that with a more senior person there to learn from, which means you just have to learn through trial and error. So 
you know, just recognize when you're having a negotiation and see what's working, what's not, and then keep keep going like that. Keep paying attention so that you do know what's working and what's not, that you don't make the same mistakes in the next negotiation. And, you know, won't give you a shortcut early on in your career, but at least later on in your career, you, you'd be a really good negotiator because you recognized, you know, what was working, what wasn't in all your negotiations, whether they be big formal negotiations or small informal negotiations. Brilliant. Thank you, John. Completely agree. So uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. I will ensure that we summarize all the key points in the show notes. You've been listening to John Byrne and myself, Dan T. Healy. Hopefully we've given you some food for thought. And by following those tips, any business beginner can start to develop their negotiation skills and become more confident in their ability to negotiate effectively. John, thank you as always for your time. Thank you, that's it. This podcast shares experiences and insights gained from business, IT and digital finance. Hosted by two leaders who have made the leap themselves, this show is dedicated to helping listeners think differently about their career aspirations.